It is great to see y'all here this morning. We are in Galatians 5, verses 13 through 26 this morning. And as you're turning there or you're waiting to watch it on the screen, uh, I want you to picture Jesus on his last day on earth. He's standing on the Mount of Olives, this little hill right outside Jerusalem. He's got his 11 remaining disciples in front of him. He knows that in just a few minutes, he's going to ascend into heaven. And he's not going to stand on earth again until the day he returns as the king. And he's about to leave his life's work, that thing that he literally died to accomplish, the most important mission in the history of humanity or the history of the universe, in the hands of these 11 guys in front of him who have already demonstrated they're not capable, already demonstrated they're not worth that kind of trust. There's a very revealing line in the Gospels in Mark 7:18. Jesus says to the disciples, are you also still without understanding? One of the other English translations renders that verse, are you still so dull? He's saying, you've been with me all this time and you still don't get it. They never got it. Up until the very end, he's still explaining the same things to them over and over again. These guys were peasants. They weren't scholars. They weren't clergy. They weren't warriors. They were just ordinary human beings and they were not ready. And yet, he's about to leave them with his mission to, to finish spreading the gospel throughout the world. And he doesn't seem nervous at all. In fact, these are his last words before he ascends into heaven. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria until the ends of the earth and, and to the end of the earth. He wasn't nervous because he knew he had an ace in the hole, so to speak. And that ace was the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That would have come about just a few days later on the day of Pentecost. You know, Jesus, in fact, said to his disciples the night before he died, he said, it's good for you that I'm going away because I'm going away. Then the Holy Spirit's going to come. In other words, yeah, you've enjoyed being in my presence and, and I've enjoyed you, but now I won't just be a localized human being stuck in, a, in an ordinary body where I can only be with so many of you at a, at a time. No, now I'll be the Spirit inside of you. Once you believe in me, the teaching of Scripture, the clear teaching of Scripture is when you give your heart to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit enters into your life that day and never leaves. And so because of that, Jesus knew these guys, it didn't matter what their qualifications were, it didn't matter what their past history was, they had it in them. They were going to accomplish great things. And you and I are the evidence that he was right. Because of their work, because they spread the gospel, we now believe today. See, we're in this series, Loving Your Neighbor in Real Life, and we've talked about how the life of following God, of glorifying Jesus, comes down to two things. It comes to loving God and loving your neighbor, loving others the way you love yourself. And we're pretty good at the first. We're not so good at the second. In fact, a lot of us don't even make an attempt. We think we're good Christians because we go to church and because we separate ourselves from the world by, by avoiding certain vices. So we, we have some moral differences and some religious differences, and we think that's enough. Well, you know who is better at that than we are? The scribes and the Pharisees. They went to synagogue way more than we go to church. They were way better at obeying the commands of Scripture than we are, and yet they fell short of God's plan. Why? Because they didn't have love. We need to demand more of ourselves than that. We need, to, we need to be people who love our neighbors as ourselves. That's how others come to know Christ. That's how we glorify Him. 
And so we've talked about so far, you and I, we're just not cut out for that, but there are certain things we can do to become the kind of people who love others consistently and, and sincerely. We can, we can make that the goal of our faith. We can die to ourselves. We can confront the idols in our hearts. That's what we talked about last week. But even so, we need a power outside of ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit of God to come take control. And that's what we're looking at today. So look at verse 13 of Galatians 5. Paul writes and says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So real quickly, before we continue on that passage, a little background. Book of Galatians is written to Gentile Christians, which meant these were people who grew up without knowing the law of Moses, the Old Testament, as we would call it. They didn't know any of the commands of God. They, they grew up following Greco-Roman moral code, which meant they were very different than Paul and those who'd grown up under Judaism. And the moral code of the Greeks and the Romans compared to Judaism was very, very come what may, do whatever you want, especially when it came to sexual ethics. And so you can imagine these people, when they first came to know Jesus, when they first realized that the Jewish Messiah was the Savior of the world and the coming King of all creation, they were terrified because they realized, oh man, all this time I've been living in a way that is absolutely disgusting to God. And so like, as happens so often when, when people come to know Christ as adults, they went the opposite direction from their old life and became legalists. So they had been these people who were absolutely libertine, chasing after pleasure at all costs, no matter who it affected, it's all about me. They went from that to being these joyless robots who were just focused on, I've got to do good, I've got to do good, I've got to avoid vice, I've got to avoid evil, I've got to follow these commands or else God's going to throw me out. And Paul writes Galatians to say to them, that's not what it's about. It's not a matter of who's most obedient. It's not a matter of who can do the best job of obeying Scripture. It's not what you can do at all. It's what Christ has done for you. That's why it's good news. Jesus has done the work. You have to receive it by His grace, and then He goes to work on you. And that's, that's the, whole, the whole point of the book of Galatians. In the first four chapters, he, said, he, he keeps hammering that message home over and over again. You are free from the law. The law was given just to guide you to Jesus so you could get saved. You are free from all of that. And then in chapter five, he has to pivot and say, yes, but that doesn't mean freedom in Christ doesn't mean you therefore go back to being a self-centered person who chases after your own desires. Because after all, what Jesus is trying to accomplish in us is make us like himself. He's trying to make us people who love our neighbors. So let's pick up with verse 15. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He could have just shortened it by saying the works of the flesh are the way you used to live. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. 
And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Sometimes Christians will say to me, and I've gone through this myself, why is it that I'm supposed to be born again in Christ? That's what he says in John 3, right? And, and Paul says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are gone and all things are made new. So how come I'm still committing the same old sins I used to commit before I got saved? How come I'm still hurting the people that I love? I thought I was supposed to be a new person. I don't think I've changed at all. This passage explains why that is. It also explains what you need to do or what needs to happen in order for that change to take place in you. But in order to get there, I, I need to give you good news, bad news, and a challenge. Now, my, my sermons aren't always that easy to outline, but if you're a note taker, there you go. You're welcome. Good news, bad news, and a challenge. So the good news is that everything you need to be is already in you. That's the good news. See, verses 22 and 23, if you've been in church at all, if you've read the Bible at all, if you've been in Bible studies, you've heard the list of the fruit of the Spirit. I know I've preached a series of sermons on it since I've been here. It's a, it's a great sermon series for preachers. It's nine topics. There you go. Boom. Nine weeks out of 52. Right there. And it's good stuff. It's, it's wonderful to see. Here's the list of the things that Christ has placed inside of you. This is who you should be. This is what we should be known for. Those are the characteristics that should define us. But when we read this list, there, there are people, there are a lot of us, in fact, who react to this in a wrong way. Some of us look at it and feel beaten down. Some of you might say, well, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is joy, and I'm, I'm just not a very joyful person. I tend to be a little more glass is half empty. I tend to, I tend to see the negative side of things and, and I, I struggle with depression. So is, is God mad at me for that, that I'm not exhibiting joy? And others might say, well, I, I know that the fruit of the Spirit is peace, but I tend to be a worry ward. I, I, I literally can't not worry. And so I, I, must, I must really be letting down the kingdom of God. And others come at, come at it differently and they, they look at the list and they make excuses. Like the person who says, you know, I know the fruit of the Spirit is patience, but I'm kind of a type A kind of guy. I, I like things done my way. And when things don't go my way, then, you know, I, I fight back. And, and that's just who I am. That's how I'm wired. And, and people just need to get used to that. In fact, if, if I weren't that way, lots of things wouldn't get done that are getting done. I, that's, that's just, you know, sometimes I lose my temper, but that's okay. I, I make up for it by being extra kind. Well, that's not exactly the way it works. Or somebody else might say, you know, it says the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness and kindness, and, but, but I'm just not wired for empathy. So if you want somebody to come alongside you when you're struggling and put an arm around you and, and, and pat your head and, and weep alongside, that's just not me. You got to go to somebody else for that. I'm, I'm more a kick you in the rear kind of guy. And, and okay, that's fine. That's who you feel like you are. But the fruit of the Spirit is right there saying, this is who Christ is trying to make you into. Don't make excuses. Don't feel beaten down. You are these things. You just haven't started letting them show yet. Maybe because of pride, maybe because of other things. We'll talk about that in the next point. My point is, these things are already in you. Don't make the excuse that that's not the way I was born. Don't make the excuse that, well, nobody's taught me how to be. It's in you. Here's the way I look at it. When I was growing up, my grandparents on my dad's side, Grandma and Grandpa Berger, had these big pecan trees out in front of their house. Some of you probably have some at your place. 
Every fall, grandma and grandpa would get out and they'd, every day they'd go out and pick up pecans and they'd bring them back inside the house and they'd shell them and then we'd come, every time we'd come over in the fall, take home a bag of pecans, which was nice, right? Because that means pecan pie. That means roasted pecans. That means grind them up and batter fish with them. I mean, everything in the world about a pecan is good. And I understand, I understand it's a matter of taste. And you might say, well, I'm not into pecans. Well, you know, that's why there's grace. We'll get to heaven, you know, in spite of your, your wrong, wrongness. But uh, the thing about a pecan, if you've ever seen one, and I'm sure you have, it's a state nut, right? It's about that big. And yet, it grows to be a tree that's between 70 and 100 feet tall and puts out 40 to 50 pounds of pecans a year. And everything that it takes to produce all of that is in that one little nut. You don't have to add anything to it. It goes in the ground, and that's what it produces. And that should be us. No matter who you think you are, no matter what you think your personality or nature is, these are the things that will come out in you as the Holy Spirit leads. You grow into this image. Now, the bad news, the bad news is you're in for the fight of your life. The bad news is the day you accepted Jesus, two things happened. One is the good part. The Holy Spirit entered into your life and will never leave. The bad part is you started a war that day, a war against your own flesh. That's the answer to the question of why do I still sin if I've come to know Jesus? Why haven't I changed? Why do I still hurt people? Why do you, Jeff, even have to preach a sermon on loving others if love is already inside of me? Well, because same reason sometimes a, a, a pecan tree doesn't produce pecans. Sometimes a pecan tree starts to wither. Something's gone wrong. The point that Paul is making in giving us this list is you see these nine characteristics, that's what you should see in your own life. And if that's not seen in your life, then an intervention is needed. Somebody needs to do something because something has gone wrong in your life. And Paul talks about it in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So when it says the Spirit is against the flesh, we know that the Spirit refers to the Holy Spirit. What is the flesh? Let me just jump right to this and say, it's not your human body. Don't, don't think that your body is evil and so your spirit inside needs to fight again. No, that's not the case. The flesh, as it's defined in Scripture, as it's defined in the, old, in the New Testament, refers to your old nature, the person you once were, that part of you that always wants to get its own way. The part of you that wants to follow its desires no matter the cost to yourself or anybody else. And believe it or not, the Scriptures talk way more about the, how to win the battle against your own flesh than it does about how to get to heaven. You realize that? You read the New Testament from end to end, and you'll see several passages about how to find eternal life. Yes, but there's not a lot of information about that because it's so easy. All you got to do is trust in Christ. But the war against the flesh is a lot more complicated and it takes, it's a lifelong battle and it takes a lot of resources we don't, that don't just come naturally to us. And so it's all through the scriptures. Listen, the devil is real. The world is out there spreading false messages and, and presenting false gods for you to follow instead of Christ. And yeah, those things are against you, but your flesh is your biggest enemy. When you trip up, it's usually because of that. And here's something else. You know it's true. I'm not giving you new information. 
You remember that time when you decided, hey, I'm going to start reading the Bible for myself. I've had enough of being spoon-fed by my pastor, by my Sunday school teacher, by my life group leader, by my BSF leader, or whatever the case may be. It's time for me to actually get the Word of God into my own heart. So tomorrow I'm going to wake up 15 minutes early. I'm going to open up Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read a whole chapter, and the next day, uh, Matthew 2, and then 3, and then 4. And it's a great plan. And you set your alarm clock 15 minutes earlier, and you think, I don't even need to do this because I usually wake up 20 or 30 minutes before my alarm anyway. But on that day... The alarm goes off, and it's like they've summoned you up from the underworld. I mean, you're just you're lost and in a fog, and you think, oh gosh, I, I need some coffee. And so you make coffee and you drink a cup and then two cups and then three. And while you're drinking your coffee, you figure I might as well turn on the news and see what's going on in the world. And then you figure I might as well check Facebook and see what's what's going on with my family and friends. Maybe they need prayer. And and then you remember a couple of chores you haven't done. You know, I told my wife I would. I would empty the dishwasher. I haven't done that yet. I, you know, my shoes sure need shining. And, you know, I, I got to iron this shirt. And wouldn't you know it, it's time for work. Oh, gosh, I didn't read the Bible today. How did that happen? Your flesh is warring against your spirit. Your flesh knows that you want to do something that's going to let the spirit gain more territory in your heart. And the flesh fights back. Or to give you another example, let's say you're involved in a conflict at work or at school. And later, a Christian friend comes to you and says, you know, you're in the wrong. You acted in a way that was completely unchristlike, And you need to apologize. You need to apologize to that person. You need to apologize to everybody who witnessed it because, I mean, your witness is on the line right here. And in your head, you know they're right. You know you were a jerk. But it makes you mad that they said that to you. How dare you say that? How dare you come and tell me what to do? Like you've never made a mistake, like you're some high and mighty person, and the last thing in the world you're going to do is do what they said and go apologize. Why? Because your flesh is at war with your spirit, and your flesh is saying, "How? no way, there is no way we're giving in. The flesh doesn't want to yield any territory. And I'll tell you something else. The flesh will never surrender. That's our real problem. Our problem is, the reason we're not producing fruit is that we have a tendency to make peace with our spirit, with our flesh, and our flesh keeps fighting. There's one of my favorite movies is The Last of the Mohicans, the one uh, that they made in the 90s with Daniel Day-Lewis. So there's a scene in the movie, and by the way, if you've never seen it or read the book, it's about the French and Indian War on this continent before there was the United States of America. There's a scene where these two officers meet in the middle of a battlefield. The the French have surrounded this little English fort, and the English have held out as long as they could, and now the French have called for the English commander to come out and and talk things over. And the English commander says, listen, I don't care what you say, we're going to fight to the last man. You can kill us all, we're not going to surrender. And he turns to walk away, and the French commander grabs him by the wrist, and he says, I beg you, do not sign the death warrant of so many young men. I promise you, if you surrender today, none of your men will see the inside of a prison. We're going to let you get on a ship, flying your colors, and sail back to England with pride. You've done more than enough to glorify your country. And you can see this this commanding officer, he's an older man, and he's thinking of these boys back behind that fortress, and he's thinking, I don't want them to die either. And so he signs, the, the he, he agrees to the surrender. The next scene, you see the British Soldiers marching toward the sea to get on their boat to sail home. And just then, a Native American tribe allied with the French attacks them, ambushes them, and slaughters everybody. 
And that's a great picture of the flesh. Because we, we say in our hearts, you know, I, I've done enough. I've come this far. I used to be somebody who used all these bad words, and now I don't use a, a single curse word, man. I, I don't even say, dang it, because it's too close to that other word. I'm so good now, I can stop. And the flesh says, oh, good. Now I'll take back the territory I've lost. And you find that, that those rationalizations you, just, you used to make about why you would lose your temper here and there, suddenly you start to lose your temper at the smaller things. You start to lose your temper all the time. And some of, those, some of those dirty words start creeping back into your vocabulary too, especially when you're not around your church friends. See, the, the flesh never signs a peace treaty. They always keep fighting. It always keeps, the, the day you stop fighting is the day it starts taking back territory. And that's why it's so hard to love your neighbor. Because in order for us to become the kinds of people who genuinely love others, the Holy Spirit has to be in charge. We can't quit. We can't quit fighting. It is a lifelong battle. The flesh will never surrender. You have to kill it. And it goes down hard. So here's the challenge. The challenge is keep in step with the Spirit. Verse 25 is the key verse in the whole passage. If you walk with the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Now, when I first read that term, keep in step with the Spirit, I thought Paul was talking about dancing. Like the Spirit is your dance partner and you have to stay in step with Him, which is bad news for me because I'm not much of a dancer, which should surprise no one. In fact, you want to see? I, uh, yeah, all of you raised your heads, didn't you? Yeah. No, that's not going to happen. Um, just wanted to scare my wife, actually. But it's, it's, I was very, very relieved to find out when I studied this further, that the Greek word for keep in step is a military term that literally means stay in formation. Stay with your unit. Don't, don't go off on your own. You have, to, you have to march behind your commanding officer. Don't, this is not a time to be a maverick. Now, I've never served in the military. Some of you have. And yet, even I know that if you're part of a military unit and you're on hostile ground, which isn't that true of us today as Christians? We are on the devil's turf. And if that's you, the worst thing you can do is decide to go off on your own. We know what happens. We've seen it in the news. When a, when a private wanders off the base, he gets captured. And what happens? His unit has to go looking for him. Some of them die trying to rescue him. Ultimately, his country has to, has to give five enemy soldiers back to the enemy to rescue his life. Meanwhile, he's being tortured nearly every day. It's a terrible decision, and it can happen to us in a spiritual sense. When we choose not to keep in step with the Spirit, and we think to ourselves, oh, you know, I, I got saved. I know, I know I'm going to heaven when I die. Absolutely. And that will never change. And God will never forsake you, even if you wander off on your own, even if you cause all kinds of pain and sorrow to those who love you, even if you cause disrepute to the name of Christ, he will never leave you or forsake you. Man, what regrets you will have at the harm you've done to yourself, to those you love, to your church, to the cause of the one who died to save you. And yet, on the other hand, when you keep in step with the Spirit, like those original 11 apostles, it doesn't matter your qualifications. It doesn't matter your, your past. All that matters is the Spirit is in charge and you become impossible to defeat. 
Some of you could get up and testify if we had time. You could tell stories of, I used to be this kind of person over here, and then I came to Christ and the Holy Spirit came in and I became a new person. I I became changed. And people who knew me before would say, what's happened to you? You're not the same person I used to know. Because when the Spirit is in charge, things like anger and arrogance and addiction and anxiety and selfish ambition just start to fade into the background and they're replaced by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That doesn't happen overnight. Any more than a pecan becomes a hundred-foot-tall tree overnight. But there should be signs of progress. You should be able to see in some discernible way, I used to be this high, and now I'm that high, and someday I'm going to be towering. And someday I'm going to produce so much fruit that my one little life is going to rain down fruit on so many other lives, and their lives are going to be changed just through knowing me. And you say, okay, so how do I keep in step? If that's the promise, if that's what God's offering me, how do I keep in step? Well, you know how in the military they have drills, to teach soldiers to fight as a unit and not be a one-man wrecking crew, but instead to be part of a unit that, that is impossible to defeat. We too have drills. We too have disciplines that cause us to keep in step with the Spirit. Beginning your day in the Word of God is a great way to do that. Whether you're studying huge sections of Scripture or a couple of verses, as long as you get the Word of God into your heart. Being in worship with your fellow believers, like we're doing here, is Huge. You need that fellowship. You need that time together. Praying, coming to God and saying, okay, Lord, as I look at this list of the fruit of the Spirit, I know, I know that I should have all of these because it's not the fruits of the Spirit, uh, plural, it's the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, if I'm in you, I should have all these things. And so I can't just say because I'm kind, it's okay that I'm not patient or because I'm at peace, it's all right that I'm not gentle. That's not the way it works. And so we confess to God, Lord, I know that I'm lacking in joy. Lord, I know that I'm lacking in peace. I'm lacking in gentleness. I'm lacking in self-control. Come into me and renew me and revive me. That prayer works. Serving others works. It keeps our minds on others. It helps us exhibit these fruits of the Spirit. There are so many disciplines. Down through the years, men and women of God have written down, here's what I did that caused me to grow. And you read and you study and you follow the examples of those saints that have come before us. And yes, you keep in step with the Spirit and the devil and the flesh and the world can't stop you. And you say, okay, Jeff, that's fine, but how much time do I have to spend doing these things, praying and and, and reading Scripture and coming to church? Well, I will ask you a question. How badly do you want this? How much help do you need? How much do you want to see your life transformed so that you begin to exhibit these nine characteristics, so that you begin to look like Jesus, so that everyone who knows you begins to see you not as a drain on their lives, but as someone who has made their lives better? How much do you want it? Because if your answer is, I want it more than anything else, because I know that even if all my dreams come true, but I never become the person God called me to be, then my life will have a sense of emptiness and all these good things I wanted will turn out to be not worth much. But I want this more than anything else. And if that's your answer, if that's the true cry of your heart, then just sit down today and make a plan and say, here's what I'm going to do. Here are the practices I'm going to try to keep in step with the Spirit each day. And if you don't know how to do that, and I'm sure a lot of you don't because that just doesn't come naturally to us, sit down with one of us. Send an email or a phone call to anybody on this 
ministry staff, and we would love to sit down and help you form a plan to keep in step with the Spirit. Or your, your life group leader would love to do that as well. And you probably know some other Christians who you look at and think, I want to live like he does, like she does. Ask them how they do it, but form a plan. On the other hand, if your answer to this question is, okay, I know I should do that, but honestly, I'm not going to lie to you, Jeff, there are other things that are more important to me. Right now, I'm just at the point where I, I need to get these things accomplished. The, there are certain things on my list that I need to get done, and then I'll be able to turn my full attention over to Jesus Christ. And if that's the case with you, God still loves you. The blood of Christ still saves you. This church still has a place for you. But just remember, right now you're that private wandering off the base and you're going to get hurt and you're going to hurt others and you're going to deeply regret it. Don't spend another day. Don't spend another day wandering on your own. In fact, my advice to you, if that's the honest request of your heart, I'll get to it later, is to say to God, Lord, here's where I am. Change me. I, I, I don't... Honestly, there are things I want more than to know you better. So change my heart. Give me a new, a renewed sense of hunger for you. I want to be the person you've called me to be. Well, I close with this. Max Lucado wrote a book several years ago. Uh, it's been a long time. And because the guy writes probably a book a year, I don't remember the title. It's been a good 20 years since I read it. But he tells a story in there about a college student who got saved. Away at school, far from home, he gets saved. He joins a church, a lot like this one. Lots of people in the church who are the age of his parents and grandparents, and they begin to just kind of take him in. And one Sunday, he hears, hey, everybody come back tonight. We're going to have dinner on the grounds. And he doesn't know what that is. He didn't grow up in church. To him, it just sounds like a brown bag affair. So he goes home, and he makes himself a bologna and cheese sandwich and a you know, puts some Fritos in a baggie and puts all that in, in his backpack and says, okay, I'm going to the dinner on the grounds. He gets there, gets into the fellowship hall, and what he sees makes his jaw drop because there's food like he's never seen in his life. Like he died and went to food heaven. I mean, somebody smoked an entire brisket and they've brought it and they're giving it away. Somebody else has brought a big big bucket of fried chicken that they fried themselves, and, and somebody else has made a big thing of, of homemade mac and cheese, and then there's every mayonnaise-based salad known to man there, and, and there's every dessert you can imagine. There's cookies, and there's brownies, and there's fruit pies with lattice crusts, and then other pies with big, big uh, mounds of meringue on them, and, and you just wouldn't believe. People have brought vegetables they grew in their garden. It's the greatest feast he's ever seen, and he starts to turn around and leave, and somebody says, hey, go grab a plate. It's time for him time for you to eat. And he says, no, I can't do that. I didn't bring anything because he's too embarrassed to even admit he's got bologna and cheese in his backpack. And they say, well, that doesn't matter. This food is for you. Grab a plate. And so he does. And they make him eat another one. This is the best food he's had since he left home. And they say, hey, mount, pile up a couple of to-go plates because we got lots of food left. Take it back. He eats on that for the next week in his dorm. All his roommates are jealous. That's a good picture of, the, uh, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You don't bring anything to the feast. You, you get there and you realize all that I have to offer is so unworthy, I'm ashamed. And yet Jesus says, it doesn't matter. I died to give you this. Feast, eat, enjoy. Never stop. Verse 24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh 
with its passions and desires. We read that and, and we think it's something active, like I have to actively crucify my own flesh. No, what it means is this. See, too many preachers and too many teachers and too many Christians think that the way you grow is through guilt. I could stand up here and I could read again that list of all the works of the flesh that's found in 19 through 21. I could preach a series of sermons on every one of those characteristics. Wouldn't that be fun? We could talk about how evil it is to be, uh, to be caught up in sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and envy and drunkenness, etc., etc. Actually, a lot of us would enjoy that because we like looking down on people who sin in ways different than we do. But guilt and moral superiority are two terrible ways to change hearts. You know what works when guilt and fear and moral superiority don't? Gratitude. That's what it means to crucify the flesh. It means to come to the cross and realize everything that I have came from him. See, that, that young man, when he hears there's a potluck supper, a dinner on the grounds, and six months later, that next time he's going to go again, but this time he's going to bring something. He's going to get on YouTube and figure out how to make a Texas sheet cake or call up his mom and say, what's your favorite recipe? Teach it to me over the phone. Not because he's afraid they're going to kick him out if he doesn't, but because he's going to say, I've been so blessed, I want to give something back. See, to crucify the flesh is to come to the cross and to say, in my hands no prize I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I brought nothing to you, Jesus, and you gave me everything. So the stuff I used to think was fun doesn't seem all that fun anymore. Now that I've tasted the, the feast that you've given me, now that I've seen the, the horrible fruits of the way I used to live, that gratitude, that sense of grace changes everything. Have you come to the cross and received that grace? Have you been set free to follow the Holy Spirit and to know that path is so much better than answering the path of the flesh? Every time you feel tempted, come back to the cross and say, yeah, this is why Jesus died. Not so I could go on living like this, but so that I could follow his spirit into something far, far better. It's throwing away any sense of entitlement, any, any sense that I deserve anything. It's coming to Jesus and saying, I want to remember the love I've been given so that I can learn to love others that way.